Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Advertising only works if it reaches the right audience. That's why Effective is committed to giving every TV advertising campaign the precise audience targeting it needs. With Effective, you have access to more than 60 audience segments. Combine that with our other precision tools, and you'll know your message is going where it needs to go. The future of TV advertising is here, and it's effective. Learn more at Effective.com Adweek. That's E-F-F-E-C-T-V dot Adweek, and get started on your next campaign today. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek podcast where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything is an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm the creative and innovation editor here at Adweek. Hi, I'm Nicole Ortiz. I'm filling in for Co. this week. I'm Adweek's senior editor, where I cover our voice channel and our trending section in the magazine. It's so great to have you back. Uh, you know, as Nicole mentions, uh, Co. M., our co-host, uh, could not be here this week. But, Nicole, you are always a worthy replacement. Thank you. Um, and as she mentioned, Nicole covers all of our opinion contributions, among many other things here at Adweek. So uh, you are the perfect co-host for this week because we're going to be talking about some things we learned in 2019, some things and trends we are expecting from 2020. We're going to rotate in a, uh, a panoply, a, a veritable just parade of, uh, of Adweek uh, <laughs> experts in these different uh, specific areas that we like to talk about. And uh, they're going to share some of their opinions about kind of the trends they saw and what's coming in 2020. So with that, let's get to it. And with us today to start us off is Eric Oster, our agency's reporter and longtime contributor and editor, maybe, of Agency Spy. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to promote you. You're editor now, buddy. All right. I guess uh, that's a lot of responsibility. Um, yeah. All right. Well, I, uh, Eric's going to kick us off talking about the rise of independent agencies and what we could look forward to in 2020 with Indies. Uh, yeah. So um, talked to a lot of folks who are saying that 2020 uh, is actually shaping up to be a great year. Uh to be an independent agency, and uh, some people may be surprised to hear that given some of the large headlines uh, in 2019 uh, around independent shops. But um, there's actually— You mean about being acquired and— Yeah, uh, in terms of acquisitions and closings, certainly some high-profile ones. Um, at, the, um, at the same time, um, there's a lot of opportunity right now if you're an independent agency, uh, in part because of some of the struggles that holding company agencies have been seeing and in part because of some new opportunities in terms of uh, clients – uh, opening up their rosters to a lot of options. Well, let, let's recap 2019. I feel like we had two of the most kind of high-profile agencies in the independent space, uh, kind of the good, the the 
maybe the best and the worst case scenarios in terms of, of how you can right. end, end your independent run uh, with one being acquired and one being closed. Tell us about those two. Sure. So the, the big acquisition this year, of course, was uh, Accenture Interactive uh, acquiring Droga 5. I believe that was back in April. Um, mm, sounds right. Yeah. Um, so that certainly caught everyone's attention. It was one of the biggest stories of the year. Um, and by all accounts, I, I I think seems to be about as as good as you could hope for uh, when being acquired. Um, I mean, it's it was a big payout, um, which is great. They bought out their previous investor, uh, Endeavor, owned, I think, 49% of Droga. Right. Yeah. So – Caveat there, um, you might call them a mostly independent agency previously. <laughs> you know, if, if you're if you own the majority of your company, I would say yourself. There are in, there are agencies that are 100 percent independent, but it's not weird to have investors. Sure. Or, you know, but yeah. uh, but you know they got bought out, got a nice big paycheck. But David Droga stuck around, senior leadership all stuck around. Uh, they, you know, I, I think what's interesting to me is you're going to see them. I think this is my prediction uh, for the next few years, you're going to see them grow globally in a way like Droga only has one overseas office, uh, London. Right. And the London office is fantastic. Uh, but they used to have an Australia office that they had to close down just because it wasn't really meeting their, you know, David Droga's bar, which was not the best moment for David Droga as an Australian creative. Uh, but it just kind of showed that, you know, it's not as easy as people think to run a, right. a global yeah. network. I think because of their relationship with Accenture, you're going to start seeing Droga 5 offices pop up in these key markets in Asia, maybe South America, and some of these places where I, I think it would more than make sense, where you're certainly seeing the Wyden and Kennedys playing and some of these other shops. Uh, so I think that's going to give them that, you know, that global boost. Uh, but uh, but. Uh, another beloved agency did not have such a good right. Yeah, the uh, the opposite end of the spectrum is sadly uh, Barton F. Graff uh, closing and also holding its own funeral. <laughs> <laughs> yes, where they had a dead rat, I believe. Yes, in a, in in a, a lot. There in was a, a lot going on. Yes. That, it seemed um, the uh, you know remind us like what why was this such a big? I mean, agencies close all the time, but why was Barton closing such a big deal? They had a reputation as perhaps advertising's weirdest agency, something I think they would be very proud – I think they were very proud to uh, to hold that title. Which and, is saying something yeah. in advertising. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think they were w- well known for, for crafting really interesting, unusual uh, creative stuff. So I think a lot of, a lot of people felt it was – you know, it was sad to see them go and wondering where where are those wacky ideas going to come from now. And mm. um, so, okay, so if we're saying that the one of the biggest got acquired and one of the, one of the best loved uh, shut down um, due to budget cuts and all these other things uh, from their clients, why are you um, kind of positioning this as one of the brighter trends that it's a good time to be an independent agency? Well, while the while there certainly have have been um, those shops who have struggled. Uh, a more recent batch of shops that are have opened up in recent years are really thriving, uh, both on the media end of things and the creative side. Uh, we'll get more, more to that in a minute. But um, one of the real areas of opportunities is uh, a place where holding company agencies have struggled, and that's the move uh, by, on a large uh, – by a large number of clients um, to, to project-based work. Uh, and that really opens up uh, these client rosters to work with a number of partners that they may not have considered before, and, and also puts a nail in the coffin of the ones who rely on the on exactly agency yeah. of record yeah. Uh, contracts. Yeah, it's great when you're starting out and you're like, sweet, we snuck in the door with this mm-hmm. major client with Nike or with Adidas or whatever. But if you are 
Barton and you want to pay an entire salaried staff continuously. And I've had friends who run independent agencies and it's heartbreaking to watch because I know how much it, it hurts them to do this, but they will scale up very large for a client that they win. Uh, Droga at one point was up to, uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but like 600 or so employees back when they were doing Google and all the, you know, all these other huge accounts. Uh, and then they, they drop back, you know, by like a hundred. Yeah, They're at like a 500 now. Yeah. And so you scale up to, to do this work and then, and then you have to lay off like a ton of people. And it's, it's heartbreaking when, when it's an yeah. independent shop. But yeah, to your point, it's great when you're starting out to, to have those opportunities. Well, I think the difference is that the agencies starting in this environment are aware that that's the reality. So they're, they're less likely to scale up to a degree that they're, that they can't sustain. Yeah. They'll freelance more and things like that. So they're not, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as, as we've seen, uh, holding companies go through consolidation and, uh, that also creates opportunities for both in that a lot of people from that environment are going on to start their own shops. And then just the amount of talent that opens up for independent agencies uh, who are, who are bringing in some of that talent as well. So our, I feel I should point out too, before we look too much in 2020, our U.S. Agency of the Year uh, was an independent agency. Yeah. Our U.S. Agency of the Year last year was an independent agency. <laughs> the same one. The same one. Who was yeah. that? Wyden and Kennedy, um, which uh, it's fair to point out is the exception to the rule <laughs> in terms of independent agencies. You can't – Wyden and Kennedy is, is just, uh, you know, its own entity and an anomaly in the advertising world and uh, – uh, that's something that uh, Jay Patasol of Forrester uh, pointed out, um, that really the, the independents that he sees thriving are uh, those that are using data and technology and digital channels as a key ingredient. And he called Wyden the exception rather than the rule. Well, you, and you also do like have Giant Spoon, right? Aren't they independent? Yeah. And they, they were our breakthrough agency of the year last year and they're everywhere. Yeah, but oh, absolutely. I, I think it's like they're very activation heavy and very digital integration heavy. And it's like they'll come and do one badass thing and yeah. then like they can leave, you know, and go do something else. It seems like they're, that model, if I were going to start an agency, I'd probably be looking at Giant Spoon as like my role model. Sure. It's like forward thinking. Yeah. yeah. And I mean it's like – and normal human beings know their work. That's yeah. the, <laughs> like yeah. my bar is just always like has anyone heard of this other than dorks like us? Yeah. <laughs> and Giant Spoon is like the stuff they make at South by Southwest yeah. for, for Westworld, for, H uh, for Game of Thrones. Um, you know, people know it and see it and, and uh, get excited about it. And they seem like they're kind of in the uh, – in just a great place to be able to call the shots of what kind of work they want to be doing. Um, but, uh, but tell us more about the, the factors going into, you know, why, why it's a good time to be uh, independent. Uh, well, a lot of opportunities really have opened up in, in terms of them being, to, being able to compete on programmatic uh, for, for once if we're looking at media agencies. Um, oh, that's interesting. And traditional shops have also been building up their media capabilities uh, in traditional independent shops, uh, a few of those being Kramer Krasselt, uh, Zambezi, and Tom Bruss, uh, who just expanded to New York. They're, they're one of the independent agencies that are, seem to be thriving right now. Tom Bruss. Uh, yeah, they also brought on uh, Jeff Benjamin recently. So that's yeah, where they're in Tennessee, right? Where are they? they're out of yeah, they're out of Knoxville. Um, but now they have a New York office, um, and, uh, and that's like a decades old agency. Yeah, um, and uh, it's fascinating to me when those ones like they've been kind of like not to say they've been a sleepy agency, but it's, it's not sort of it's, under the radar. Sure. Yeah, they're not like a, a hot 
you know, blowing up, like to the point where we were considering Tombris for our breakthrough agency of the year. Yeah. Which is hilarious. But it's like <laughs> they're 60 years old or whatever. And it was like, well, but you break through when you break through. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just, I think that's a great example of how there's agencies finding opportunity where they see it now and uh, some ca- really capitalizing on it. They're like the challenger brands of the agency world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there are, there are a lot of them. The, I, I always think back to I, – I do have trouble understanding the – like I don't have trouble understanding the, the – the, the, you know, why it would be cool to be independent. I would want to be independent. Mm-hmm. But I do think about, OK, if you could have access to all these resources and be part of a network like you know a TBWA or whatever, or BBDO, like and have access to all those resources, why wouldn't you want it? And I always think back to a few years ago, maybe three years ago, Widening Kennedy was flat for the year. And – I asked them when we named them Global Agency of the Year that year. It's like they were the Global Agency of the Year despite being flat. And it was because they had really done some incredible things in terms of positioning their agency for growth and for success. And we were correct in that the next two years they dominated every discussion of advertising. Uh, But at the time they told us, you know, we're flat because we can be. Right. Mm. We can invest every dollar that we bring in back into the company and we don't have shareholders to make happy. Mm-hmm. And this is something where I've never made peace with this aspect of capitalism that you can make a ton of money and fail as a business because you haven't met your, to me, seemingly arbitrary <laughs> goals of profit. Yeah. But they're one where like, if we can pay our salaries and pay our bills and keep our lights on and do the work we want to be doing – you know, then why would we? It's kind of aspirational on when you put it that way. Well, I've never heard one person at Wyden be like, "If only I could just get richer." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but they're they're you know to your point, they're a special case. But I do think that they're an annual reminder that the model can work. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those investments certainly paid off. Uh, you know, and I that's a great point that independent agencies can afford to make investments that are for the long term that don't make sense on a quarterly basis. And ter- if you're, you know answering to shareholders on quarterly profits. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Eric. That was great. And I uh, look forward to seeing what does happen with independent agencies in the year. I encourage everyone to check out uh, Eric's story on adweek.com and in the magazine about uh, whether or not this is a golden era for uh, independent agencies. And I don't know. My heart hopes it is. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. It's like it's hard not to root for them. Yeah. How can you not? Yeah. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with uh, even more experts from our uh, fellow newsroom folks here to talk about the what we expect from 2020. Being precise isn't easy. It takes a lot of data, a lot of attention to detail, a lot of planning. But in the end, precision makes an impact. And Effective, formerly called Comcast Spotlight, delivers TV advertising with precision targeting. We blend data from multiple sources to help you find your audience and deliver impactful messages that get results. And we're inviting you to learn more at Effective.com slash Adweek. That's E-F-F-E-C-T-V dot com slash Adweek and get started today. Okay, and now we have our TV editor, Jason Lynch, with us, and he's going to talk about some streaming and some of his favorite TV shows that he wrote about of the last year. Hello. Hey, great to have you back, Jason. Yeah, so, to be here. So you did recap uh, your favorite uh, shows of the year, um, and uh, you also had the unenviable position of having to go through the best shows of the decade. <laughs> uh, but let's start with the year. What were some of your favorites? 
Um, this year, this is uh, – I feel like most years there is a lot of kind of disagreements over what the number one show is. And, and this year um, – the the almost industry wide consensus seems to be that Fleabag is the number one. Mm-hmm. I certainly was in that group. Um, the Phoebe Waller Bridge comedy for Amazon came back for season two, um, and even improved on season one. And you know, certainly everybody this summer was talking about Hot Priest, but it's <laughs> just such a. Uh, it was just such kind of a, a brilliantly written, brilliantly acted comedy, and uh, you know, and best of all, um, it's only six. The, it, the season's only six episodes long. You can binge the whole thing in about three hours, and it was just kind of such a uh, pleasant breath of fresh air in um, in a time where, especially with all these streaming dramas tend to like push well past the hour mark per episode and it can just be such a daunting task to to watch some of these shows and to have something like Fleabag come in um you know was was just terrific when you previewed the best new shows of the year, if I remember right, you had uh, Watchmen at number one. I did, yes. Did that pan out? Yeah. So, uh, so usually, I, I when I do these lists, I have seen the entire season of everything, and mm. Watchmen I had not seen the, the the final episode. They didn't screen it for anybody ahead of time. So, um, well, actually, they they did uh, shortly ahead of time, but just but certainly I had already I had already uh, published my story. So I was a little worried, but not too much, not too worried because it had just been in such great hands with Damon, Damon Lindelof and his writing staff the whole the whole year. And I thought that the I thought the finale was um, was I don't want to say perfect. I kind of don't. I, nothing is probably perfect, mm-hmm. but it, it was just such kind of a brilliant um, way to to pull all of these kind of threads together that he had he had you know laid throughout the whole season, and um, and I loved it. And you know he has said that it may just be a self contained story. It may not continue. I can get that. I also at the same time would love to see the next iteration of that, um, which would be very different in a lot of ways considering how how that, that last uh, episode ended. But that was one, you know, Damon Lindelof sometimes gets some grief for not being able to quote-unquote stick the landing. You know, a lot of people who, who remember, you know, the Lost finale were, you know, some people were let down and, and um, you know. We, with, we don't talk about <laughs> the Lost finale. And then with, with, with both this and with The Leftovers, which was another HBO oh, show, that show, which, you know, had a very kind of small – Group of people who loved it, but but both of those have have just kind of had these just wonderful conclusions. So um, so yeah, Watchmen was my number one new show of the year, and um, and I think a number three overall. But yeah, that that was another terrific one. Nicole, what was your favorite show of the year? I think Fleabag. Actually, mm. I thought it was so beautiful. The second season, I saw somebody wrote on Twitter. I think um, that it felt like that feeling. When it concluded, after you read a good book and you just feel like you're in this world and you feel like you're with the characters and you're living their life with them. And it just, oh, my God, it was just so beautiful. And, um, yeah, I, I can't, what else have I been watching? I don't know. I stuck away. I avoided The Handmaid's Tale season three this year because it's just been a lot. Um, <laughs> I liked the first season. I, the second season was all right, and then season three came out, and I was like, I, I don't think I can do this right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been rewatching a lot of older things. What about you? You know, I'm going to say, and I think Jason had this on both his best new shows and best of the year, is Unbelievable uh, on Netflix. I don't think any show has haunted me, stayed with me, had the emotional impact uh, and and I mean it's a cliche to say emotional roller coaster, right? But I'd say it's somewhat accurate in this instance. The first episode is the most painful 
episode of maybe anything I've ever watched. Mm. Uh, for those who don't know, and I don't think this is any sort of a spoiler, it's about a woman who's attacked by a, a who turns out to be a serial rapist. Uh, it's a true story, and the police do not believe her mm. um, because of a lack of uh, well, what they perceive as a lack of evidence. Uh, the male uh, police officers, and then the rest of the series is devoted to the female police officers who take up the case uh, with different victims. And wow. hopefully that's not giving away too much because, yeah, man, it's so – you have to watch – I think Jason and I have talked about this. You you can't watch the first episode and then go to bed <laughs> because you will not watch episode two. You have to watch first and second because second one is like a ray of sunshine. You meet the main characters. You find out there's hope and that people do care about these yeah. victims and that police don't have to be awful. And um, – Man, just an incredible show. Yeah, I mean, what what is so great about it is so it kind of it, it goes back and forth between the story of this woman, um, Caitlin Deaver, and then also the the two uh, female detectives who a couple years later are investigating this serial rapist, and those are played by Tony Collette and Merritt Weaver, who are both uh, phenomenal actresses. And what to me was so um, interesting about this, among many other things, was that you know we have seen. Hundreds of TV sh- de- uh, shows about detectives, and just the fact that you have two female detectives at the lead as the leads, and then tell the entire story through um, a female point of view, I-, I don't think that we've seen that in any of the hundreds of of you know police detective shows that have been on, and it just. It was such a kind of fresh perspective and it really – you know, I felt like it turned a um, – you know, this whole genre just on its head and kind mm-hmm. of you know, just showed you that even, even these, these kind of shows and, and genres that just seem like there's nothing new to say, there's always something new to say. I've never been a fan of procedurals uh, you know, as a – I mean I like Law and Order or whatever. But like they're, they're repetitive and they're kind of – I covered crime uh, early in my career. My wife did too and – those shows are not accurate, and I don't think yeah. they care to be accurate. This show really does a great job of conveying the boring minutia of detective work and of labs and the roles that all those play and how long and how boring everything is, but with the emotional weight of what they're investigating mm-hmm. and, the, and the stakes of we have to catch this person and how long it takes to do that. Uh, and, and I've heard from experts in the field too that it's one of the most accurate in that regard of, of showing that it's – it's not a super fun job and like not really yeah. easy, but at the same time, it does have a lot of emotional weight. People don't just make wisecracks over the corpses <laughs> like in uh, you know Law and Order. Um, as I mentioned, you uh, you did also recap the best shows of the decade. Can you uh, walk us through a few of the? Uh, uh, well, yeah. a, what was your process for yeah. that? <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's 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 interesting because um, as I wrote in this story a decade ago, there were I think two hundred eleven scripted shows and. Now, 10 years later, there are more than 500. So <laughs> so it's TV has more than doubled. You know, the, the scripted output has more than doubled in that time. And that's you know certainly the advent of streaming and more cable networks that went into that. So, so there is just this incredible glut of programming to choose from. But, um, you know, I really just um, – you know, I just went by kind of what resonated the most. Um, I also said that everything had to have come out no earlier than 2009, which took things like Mad Men and Breaking Bad off the table. Mm. But, you know, when – I, I, you know, I had a big long list and kind of whittled it down and, and you know, in the end, to me, The Americans on FX was um, – was a show that you know I fell in love with from from I think when I saw the pilot and I just fell more in love with every subsequent season as they pivoted a show this show away from 
a procedural, which is what we were talking before, how that can be kind of bland and a little, a little limiting, and into a story that really just delved into these characters. You know, Carrie Russell and Matthew Reese play Russian spies undercover in suburban Virginia in the 80s as a married couple having a family. And it really, um, yes, you know, it, it still goes into their missions, but it was so much more interesting going into their, the two of them and their relationship and the impact that, that, that their profession has on the people around them and their, their kids. And it was, uh, it was just so compelling. And I feel like, you know, it was something that the, the Emmys really never gave it its due. You know, they recognized it kind of toward the end. But um, I think that, you know, when we look back, you know, a decade or so down the line, we're going to rank that right up with the Sopranos and the Breaking Bads mm-hmm. of the world. Yeah, I feel like if you were to ask me the best scenes from any show in the last decade, I would think of the the two Fleetwood Mac scenes mm-hmm. as, I guess, the best way to call yep. them. Um, you know, the, to me, the best one being when they played the chain. Uh, I think they're, like, trying to either protect, like, an informant or whatever from getting uh, murdered. It's complicated what they're doing, but what matters is that scene is so perfectly shot, so intense – and also highlights that these characters who you've come to love and care about are also cold-blooded murderers. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, like a, a, I think a woman like delivering flowers happens to see them in the middle of the, and they, she, uh, Carrie Russell just, uh, just straight up shoots her to death <laughs> it right there. And you're just like, oh, but I liked you. <laughs> <laughs> and then the only other one I'll say on my best of the decade list is number two, which was almost on the other end of the spectrum, which was Parks and Recreation on yes. NBC. <laughs> and really, you know, th- that is something where it, even though it only it's only been a few years, it, it almost seems like um, an anachronism now to have a show that really just talked about how um, people in politics, yes, it was local politics, were kind of trying to like band together to do good for people mm-hmm. just because – you know, we're in such a politically toxic environment right now and kind of a very relentlessly optimistic show about people who wanted to use, you know, their their jobs, um, you know, within politics for good um, is, is you know, kind of something we need more of right now. I wish there were some Les- Leslie Nopes in the world. Yeah, um, the other sure. interesting thing there is that, it, you know, it was, it was a broadcast uh, show and um, I think I only had – I don't think I had any broadcast shows on my best of, of the year list um, this year. And, you know, it just kind of shows, again, that that shift in, you know, the highest quality programming away from broadcast to, to streaming or cable. Yeah. Parks and Rec is, like, one of my favorite shows. I rewatch it all the time, like The Office, because it's just – it's so feel-good. And even when, like, Leslie has – when she's getting recalled and it's – Heartbreaking. She's. It's still hilarious in the same breath, and there's still that optimism that you're talking about, and it really is like I wish there were more Leslie Nopes. Yeah, and I don't think people appreciated this at the time, but you think about everybody in that cast. I mean, Chris Pratt. This is basically yeah, you know, like the thing that almost turned him into a star. And of course, Amy Poehler and mm-hmm. Rob Lowe and Adam Scott, Adam Scott and Aziz Ansari, Aubrey Plaza. I mean, it's a you know, wow, yeah. it's, yeah, it's it's, a it's really, really just this Rashida kind of Jones. like people are going to look back one day and they're going to say like it's almost like uh, you know it's like an Avengers of you know like these great comedic actors. How do they get these all these people together Billy in Eichner. one show? Yeah. He's still. Isn't it yeah. too? It really is. Like everywhere you look, there's whoever someone plays in John it. Ralphio. What's that guy? <laughs> oh, I always uh, forget ben, his name. Uh, ben, ben Schwartz. Schwartz. Yeah, yeah. He he's my favorite character. Yeah. The and and you know to your point, I think it was something where at the time it felt weird that this 
you know, to have this optimistic, idealistic, and and this the show famously, I mean, everyone says skip season one, and and it kind of famously misread her in season one or mis miswrote her in season one to be a bit of a butt of the joke. Mm-hmm. But now you see women like this everywhere who have felt this compulsion. Unfortunately, not for like Leslie, you get the sense has always dreamed about this every, I mean, every day of her life. Uh, many other women in real life have been pulled into it, called into it by events of the last few years. But yeah, man, what a what a show ahead of its time. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, let's talk. Speaking ahead of their time, 2020. Let's look into the future. Uh, Disney Plus was kind of. I feel like for the last year and a half, we've been talking about when Disney Plus hits right. and what the impact will be. It has hit. I'm super addicted to it. I just I downloaded it. it or Bought it, I guess. I'm not downloading, but I'm so excited. We got it so we could watch the Muppet Christmas Carol and Home Alone easily. And I am so excited to just dive in. I'm going to watch all the Star Wars movies next. Mandalorian. Yeah, I haven't Mm. watched that. I'm waiting to watch the movies again before, even though I know they're not related. But the reason I bring it up is because I think there was this feeling that this was this defining moment of the before and after that that would lead us into the stream again, the stream apocalypse that we've been seeing coming. So what's coming? So I mean, it's it's you know it's it's almost like streaming get in part two because, you know, we, we've had Disney Plus, we've had Apple TV Plus, which made much less of a splash than Dis- Disney Plus did. But then we have in the coming months next year, we have Peacock, which is going to be NBCU's streaming service coming in April. We have HBO Max, which is Warner Media streaming service coming in May. So you have the question again of how those new services will affect the landscape. But then you have additionally just how the existing services and existing media companies are going to adapt to this new environment. So for example, you know, Disney took full operational control over Hulu earlier this year. They are going to kind of turn Hulu slowly, I think, into an adult version of Disney+. Plus. Yeah. One thing they've already said they're going to do is uh, kind of showcase FX content. So already some content that had been made for FX is now going to appear on Hulu, like FX for Hulu. So you're going to have this kind of blurring between linear and streaming in a way that we've never seen before. Warner Media, as they really kind of gear up for HBO Max, they are taking um, – they're shifting a lot of the the branding on their existing linear channels. And, and the, you, we see that with NBCU and some other ne- ne- networks as well. So there's a big question going forward about the brand identities of these cable networks, of these broadcast networks and – how is this all going to shake out? You know, is is streaming basically just going to now be considered like the 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 one stop shop for all premium TV? I mean, we're kind of heading perhaps in that direction, and I think this year we'll uh, go a long way to helping answer that question of like how how the landscape is going to shift. Where do advertisers fit in this in this scenario? Like Hulu's kind of had it both ways. Mm-hmm. Disney Disney Plus, to my knowledge, has no ad integration. Yeah, Disney Plus is ad free. Um, Peacock is going to have ads. Um, HBO Max is not going to have ads initially, but there will be an ad-supported tier offered, I think, about a year after it comes out. So there is still a question about um, how advertisers are, are going to be involved. And I think in the case of both Peacock and HBO Max, they are also trying to figure out potentially new formats. You know, we, we see Hulu already doing a lot of experimentation. They have kind of a binge format they've just rolled out. They have a pause format. When you hit pause on a program on Hulu, you have an ad that kind of pops up then. I like – I always get a Charmin ad for some reason. So, so they must, are – I don't know what that says about me. <laughs> they're, so, they're, so everybody is trying to figure out kind of new ways to reach – to reach consumers who are trying to do what they can to avoid ads. So, you know, there there are I would say there are more opportunities for advertisers in streaming services now than there were this time last year. There will be even more a year from now, but it is still kind of a work in progress as everyone's trying to figure it out. Do you think we'll end up having 
Like, will the model become that there will be a premium version, like an ad-free version and an ad-supported version in the way of Hulu? Is that going to become a standard? I, I think so. I mean, certainly with Peacock, they, um, they, the scenarios they're floating right now is that kind of that same switch, that same uh, difference in tiers between ad-supported and ad-free. And as we've already said, HBO Max will be ad-free to start, and then they'll, they'll roll out an ad-supported one. And then, of course, like everyone's eyes are going to be on Netflix, and they continue to insist that they're not going to do an ad-supported tier. But I think if you see their membership, uh, their, their subscriber numbers continue to either flatten or even fall off, especially domestically. At some point, they're not going to have a choice. The only mm-hmm. way they're going to be able to build those numbers is to is to offer you know off, offer their services at a discount. They're not going to be able to do that without ads. What about like product placement? Where do you think we'll see more of that within streaming shows? Um, I mean, you, you already you already do see that. I mean, I think yeah. you know, in on Netflix, there is certainly uh, a lot of product product placement and has been for years. So. So there will be continue to be that. I mean, it's still just a conversation. It's an ongoing conversation between marketers and publishers over the best way to get messages across to consumers who are doing what they can to avoid them. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. Like, I wouldn't have thought I would ever really love an ad-supported uh, streaming service. And then they gave me Hulu for free with Spotify. And I'm like, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. I missed I'm, out. They won't. Oh, do they not <laughs> yeah. do that anymore? Yeah, they wouldn't, they wouldn't honor it even though I've – had locked into it, and then, yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's one of those things where I, every time an ad comes up, I think, I'm not paying a dime for this. Yeah. You know, well, I mean, I guess I am through Spotify. But, you know, it's one where I was like, okay, I'm willing to make yeah, that exactly. opportunity cost. And yeah. there's still a lot less ads than there are on broadcast. And they have found, you know, that, that because for reasons like that, what you just described, that consumers are more amenable to ads under certain circumstances. So when you, when there are two different tiers and consumers you know, say, okay, I have made the choice. I am paying less, and I understand by making that decision, pay less per month. I'm going to see some ads, and I'm okay with that. Um, so it, so you you do um, you don't get that kind of dissatisfaction um, that maybe you get in other circumstances. Where do you think, just to close out this conversation, where do you think Netflix is going to be a year from now? Uh, that is the big question because when all these services are up and running, and everybody says that. They really think consumers are only going to be able to subscribe to three or four at the most. So, like, some tough decisions are going to be are going to have to be made. But also, especially HBO Max and Peacock, they're also trying to set up a circumstance where they're going to almost try to convert existing users, where you don't necessarily have to do uh-huh. another subscription. So, HBO Max, um, the way they're setting it up is, for the most part, if what happens, if the negotiations work the way that they 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 hope so with all the cable companies. All current HBO subscribers will basically be able to upgrade to HBO Max for free for the same amount of money that you're paying $15 or so a month for HBO. You'll get HBO Max, which is HBO plus all this other stuff. And then Peacock, um, the idea with Peacock going in, we'll know more when there's an investor's day in mid-January. But they have said from the start that this will be offered for free to all Comcast customers from the jump. So right away, if you are a Comcast subscriber, you all of a sudden have all this new um, – this, all this new programming that you know technically you're not paying any more money for. So then with all these new things coming in, then it's the question, yes, yeah, so, so Netflix, do I need to subscribe to Netflix all the time? You know, do, do people switch to, a, to kind of a system where like maybe one month you subscribe to one service and one month you subscribe to the next? Um, that's all still to be determined. I mean, this is – we have never been in a situation like this in the industry before where uh, things are shifting so wildly and nobody knows – what the consumer behavior is going to be like in response to it. So I think that 
Um, I do expect that the Netflix numbers are going to either be flat or going to fall off a little bit this year, um, especially just as everyone's kind of feeling their way and like where, where, where they go from here and then maybe could rally down the, you know, a year or so down the line. But I think it's going to be you know, for this company that's just kind of been this upward trajectory for years and years and years and kind of has the swagger to, mm-hmm. to match that, um, I think this could, be, this could be the first time we see them get knocked down a peg or two. Jason, thanks so much for coming to join us and giving us your outlook for the year and uh, your uh, your look back on the best. I encourage everyone to check out Jason's roundups of the best ads of the year, the best ads of the decade, and the trends coming uh, for 2020. Thanks so much for making time for us. Thanks, sure. Jason. All right. We are going to take another break, and then we'll be back uh, to kind of look even more big picture at what is coming in 2020. We'll be right back. Okay, and to close us out, we have our executive editor, Stephanie Paderick, with us, and she's going to be kind of looking back on some things that happened at Adweek and also looking forward. Hey, Nicole. Hi, Steph. It's good to be here. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. It was an exciting year for us. It was a huge year for (laughs) us. Yeah, we don't spend a lot of time talking about ourselves. We talk a lot about the industries we cover, uh, as it should be. But uh, but yeah, no, I mean, we're in an industry, like the media industry, not really known for its like booming uh, success and growth. But it's been a really fun year for Edwin. It has been a fun year. I mean, something that sort of set the tone was that we've been celebrating our 40th anniversary all year. Yeah. Um, yeah so it's <laughs> been, I mean, this has been actually a two-year effort, I have to say, um, by our uh, senior brand editor in particular, Robert Clara, who has who has spent the last couple of years digging through our archives and just looking back at the very he tracked down the very first ad week which in itself was hard to find that very first copy I think he had to go to the New York Public Library to get it wow. and it's beautiful such it's, a thing of beauty <laughs> <laughs> well, we've come a long way I'll just say that um, and and he created a database of all like he pulled just you know what he found to be the most interesting articles the most seminal moments times where we really got you know we made predictions and were right and times where we made predictions about the industry and were dead wrong um, and created this database. And then all year, our entire staff has been pulling from that treasure trove um, for our content. And so, yeah, I think we, you know, I don't, I don't know about you, David or Nicole, but I came into this year with almost a sense of gravitas in a way of like, I'm kind of, we're part of this um, long tradition, you yeah. know, like our magazine has, has stayed around for 40 years. And how do we then keep pushing it forward into the future? Yeah, I sat in on a presentation by The Economist uh, this year at a conference, and they were like, well, this year we turned 160. And I was just <laughs> oh like, gosh. okay, well, up till now, I felt like we were pretty <laughs> old. But in the in the American media industry, I would say that it's an accomplishment to survive, you know, four years, much less 40. Um, but you and I have been with Adweek stuff for uh, five, six years. That yeah. sounds about right. And in, when we joined, this was not a business. Uh, this was a great magazine uh, and a great had a great news team. Uh, we were not really known for events. Uh, there was a lot of stuff that we have added since then, but I feel like this year especially, our events team is just phenomenal and the events we put on. And I'm not just saying this as like some paid shill. They're, they're great. No, they're amazing. And I mean, it's true. You know, five years ago, around the time David, you and I started working together, the big push was we were building up the digital part of the business, right? And that, that was somewhat new. Um, and uh, I would say this past year has – past two years have been about building up the event side of the business to the point where it's – uh, you know, we had, I think, I want to say like 36 print editions and 42 events. <laughs> oh, my God. I never thought of it that way. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> no wonder we're always so tired. Right. Exactly. <laughs> 
But uh, the good thing is our staff has grown too, along yeah. with that, I should say. Uh, and tell us about, so we have the kind of these tent pole events, uh, mm-hmm. I, I guess you could call them, that are like of those 40 plus events we do, uh, three of them going into 2020 are going to really be our kind of pride and joy. Tell us about those. Yeah, I think um, there are three ones worth marking on your calendar if you're if you're sort of, you know, planning um, uh, where you're going to be and what you're going to do next year. The, the one coming up right now is Challenger Brands, and that is March 4th through 5th. Um, Coming up fast. It's coming up really fast. Tickets are on sale now. Um, And that's going to be at Convive in downtown Manhattan here in New York. Challenger Brands is a two-day summit. And um, and it really is focused on who are who are the newcomers coming into the brand space. So a lot of them are D to C's, but not necessarily. Look at every category and see like who's the legacy brand, and who's that up and comer, who's changing the category in one way or another. Um, but it's not just limited to challenger brands in terms of who's on our stage and who's attending. We also have a lot of what we would call legacy brands who've been around for a long time. Like last year, um, I talked to Jen uh, Jen Say from Levi's, the CMO of Levi's about how they actually are seeing themselves as a challenger brand mm. because they had some years where they they felt, you know, they were irrelevant, where they maybe slipped culturally, and she has sort of led the charge to bring them back into relevancy. Um, so, yeah, we, we look at the idea of challenger brands in a lot of different ways, and um, we have some great speakers lined up this year. Who can you tell us about? I can't, so we haven't we haven't actually announced it yet, but I I can I can let a few slip. So um, uh, chief marketers from the NFL will be there. So we'll we'll get them right after the Super Bowl. Maybe not right after, but about a month after. Mm. Um, also Uber, uh, Goop, uh, Rock the Vote, also, which I think will be oh, really interesting. Good year for them. Yeah, wow. very good year. So uh, yeah, a lot of variety there. Well, great. And uh, what are the other two? Okay, so another one uh, to watch is um, our Next Tech Conference. So we actually, uh, we started, we had the the inaugural one last year, and it's going to come back to New York in July. And that is also um, a two-day, you know, a two-day summit where we really explore ad tech, martech, programmatic, privacy, um, the CCPA, uh, uh, you know, Privacy oh, the Act. rollout, yeah, that's exactly. coming soon. That's coming January 1st. Yeah. Um, so it's really, I think, top of mind for uh, a lot of people right now. And um, July, I think, will be a good time to sort of dissect, you know, how has that rolled yeah. out? Uh, there are a lot of questions around it. Have those been answered? Yeah. And, and of course, our uh, biggest event for those who are active in the brand marketing space is Brand Week. Um, brand Week as some may know, uh, used to be a magazine. It is now, again, a magazine, but it was a magazine we had retired several years ago uh, as part of a consolidation. We used to have Ad Week, Media Week, Brand Week, and now it's all you know, call it all one under Ad Week. And when uh, a few years ago we were talking about bringing it back, and I'm just going to tell a quick story. I don't even know if Steph knows this. Like one day I sat with uh, with our former boss, uh, Jim Cooper. I, I just dropped into his office and literally just said like, you know what we should do? We should bring back Brand Week but mean it like a, like a week-long event. Wait, is this your fault? <laughs> you do this? Well, so, and, and, and Jim like very politely was just like, yeah, yeah. Like I basically just say we should launch a week-long event. And he's just like, uh, maybe – and then I was just like, I don't know. I think it could be a thing. And then I left. And then, of course, like that did not at all trigger any of those. I think it was a a 
you know, it's one of those, it's like calculus was invented two places at the same time. I, I like it like a bunch of people maybe had that. But then part of me is always like, so, um, you know, as successful as it gets, I want everyone to remember I founded it. <laughs> but, but tell us about, uh, you were at uh, Brand Week this past year, and uh, and this was the second year of Brand Week. Next year is going to be the third and even bigger, but we have a new location. Yes, mm-hmm. we do. So um, Brand Week is going to come back for year three, and it's going to move from Palm Springs on the West Coast to Miami on the East Coast. Um, And it'll also move from November to September. So um, we're excited about that that change. You know, it keeps growing. The first year we had about 400 people. Um, This year we had close to 900 people. And it was was thrilling, I have to say, actually, to to have been there the first year. And that felt big for us. Mm -hmm. Um, But to go back the second year and see it double in size, um, and just see to, just to see how excited people were about it. Um, one comment we get is even as it's growing, it just still has this a really intimate feel. Mm-hmm. It's the kind of um, you know it's the kind of event where you can go to and you can you know like go to the bar at the end of the night and find yourself sitting next to you know the the CMO of the Gap or you know um, and so a lot of like you know fantastic connections with high level people were yeah, made this I, year. I feel like that's an important caveat. We do a lot of events with hundreds of people, but this is man, we're talking. Like the biggest VIPs in all of marketing. So when we say we had you know three hundred or whatever last year, and then hundreds more this year, we're talking like basically the top one percent of the entire marketing industry. Yes, and this year of our attendees, two hundred and fifty were CMOS. Wow. So yeah, we had a very very high level crowd. And there's uh, only two hundred and twenty CMOS in the whole country. I know, it's weird. We, I know. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it seems like that's going to be a, anything else you're looking forward to in 2020 uh, for us or for the industry. Yeah, well, I would just say in terms of our staff and our coverage, um, we've just recently, within you know the past month, I would say, um, brought on some new team members uh, if, to cover key areas. And one is on our brand team. Um, we've we've brought in a couple of breaking news reporters who are covering breaking news surrounding brands. Uh, we've seen. I mean, I'm sure you guys have noticed there have been a, there's been a lot of CMO moves. Speaking of of you know CMOs, a lot of CMOs you know leaving positions, starting new positions, um, brands you know uh, creating a new C-suite positions adjacent to the CMO, and so we have a couple of reporters who are just tracking you know, tracking that news um, day in and day out, uh, which has been great. And I think it's given our coverage some more breadth and some more immediacy. Um, The second thing is that we've brought on two new retail reporters. So um, one is covering uh, the CPG space and the other is covering the financial side of retailers. So we now have a four-person uh, reporting team dedicated to retail, and that is so. Look for that in 2020. Uh, we are going to be, um, I think, kind of making some waves with our retail coverage. Yeah, and, and you know, this builds on a lot of success. Again, you know, looking back five, ten years ago uh, with Adweek. We certainly had editors who maybe specialized in one area like media, but I mean, very broad. And everyone kind of did everything. Uh, we were all generalists. And uh, and that has really changed where you look at, um, you know, we have Ryan covering travel. We have these very specific niches. And the content coming out of it is phenomenal because it's if if that's what you focus on every day. Uh, Ian Zelaya joined us to co- to cover experiential marketing, and to have someone who just covers experiential every day, um, and and Patrick Culp covering AI. And I mean, it's it's been a great it, a few years ago. I would have been like, is there enough there, like to justify this? And now we're just like, whoa, there's too much. <laughs> yeah. And as someone who gets to edit these reporters, it's really amazing to watch them flourish into an expert in their beat and like. 
to it, it's kind of you marvel at it sometimes where you're like, wow, they really know this in a way that I I could talk about it, but I can, I don't know it in this granular level, and it's really impressive. I, I want to quickly embarrass both of you okay. um, and Great. say just what an abject pleasure it has been working with both of you. Uh, Nicole, you. we've been talking about all this uh, expertise uh, among our staff that we deal with every day, um, but they're required to work for us. They're paid to work for <laughs> us. Nicole works with experts across the entire industry. She is our uh, opinion editor, essentially, who's out there finding the brightest minds, the best voices in the industry, and handling it in a really responsible way. I, I see I'm not, I'm not going to trash talk any competitors, but I do see irresponsible curation out there uh, among certain they'll run opinions without really thinking through and it's part of this whole idea of hey it's just someone's opinion yeah opinions can be harmful and what's kind of funny about some of those i see them too and i'm like oh i got that pitch i said no so it's kind of funny to see yeah see it land somewhere i guess but i just want to say that uh watching nicole take ownership of that and build it out of the last few years you do such a phenomenal job because that is editing someone is kind of it's not to say it's easy it's a lot easier when you could just go in and be like well i'm gonna change these words and (laughs) and i'm your boss so there you go and nicole has a much harder job and you've done such a fantastic job thank you so much and then of course stephanie uh has been running our newsroom for several years now and has just done such a phenomenal job building this team and watching it grow at a time when the media industry doesn't really grow. Uh, and you do it with such a – just a great uh, personality and you're not – you know, it's just finding that line of being – we all know your vision. We all know uh, w- you know what you want from us and what you expect from us and the high bar that you set every day. Um, but you do that without being a, a jerk and, <laughs> and we, all, we all come to work really enjoying working for you and, uh, and it's really just been a, a huge pleasure. David, thank you. That's so nice. On that note, uh, we are out of time. And thank you so much, Steph, for making time for us today. Yeah, thanks for having me over. Yeah. Let's do it again in 2020. Yeah, Yeah, see you next year. (laughs) Nicole, so great to have you. It was a a shame Co couldn't join us. She really wanted to. Yeah. Um, But it was, uh, you know, you are more than worthy replacement. So thank you so much for making time. Always happy to join. Thanks for having me. Our theme music is by Home. Uh, this week's episode was produced by Co M with a production assistance from Josh Rios and edited by Lane McIvney. If you have not yet already, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews help us uh, reach new listeners and uh, they just make us feel better. Uh, and you can reach us anytime at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. I'm David Greiner for Adweek and we will be back in the next year. 